0: You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany sermon series, Finished! The End of the World and Our Way of Living in It. In this series, we see that the powers and principalities of this world are finished, and our depraved way of living in this world is finished. Christ leads us into a new way of being human, and eventually, an entirely new creation. Now hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. Uh, My name is Sam. I'm one of the pastors here. You probably have not seen me in a very long time for for obvious reasons, but I just wanted to take this moment and and say that uh, my wife and my family, we miss all of you very much, uh, and we look forward to uh, embracing you and putting our arms around you uh, someday here in the future. Uh, This morning... uh, As we've already discussed, we're going to finish our, uh, we're going to actually begin our final mini-series that will conclude our sermon series through the Gospel of Matthew that it seemed like we started when Pastor Bobby and Pastor Jonah both had full heads of hair. Uh, And so not coincidentally, this this mini-series we're calling Finished. We're going to look at Jesus' final sermon, His final parables and instructions, Jesus' final meal and his final breath. In these chapters and sermons we will encounter words of warning and judgment, a plot of murder, the betrayal of a friend, the denials of another friend and the death of Jesus. But amidst all of these legitimately really scary words that Jesus will say amidst all of the suffering and lost, there is always an invitation within these sermons and within these passages and an underlying theme of hope. We will see Jesus finish the work that he he came to this earth to do, and we will hear words of promise that Jesus will bring it to a finality. We kick off this sermon series in the first 12 verses of chapter 23. These, these verses serve as the introduction to Jesus's final sermon through the, in the gospel of Matthew in the same way that the Beatitudes are the introduction to the, uh, his sermon uh, in the Sermon on the Mount Matthew chapters 5 through 7. These verses serve as the introduction to uh, what many of your Bibles will, will probably label as a sermon uh, of the seven woes of the scribes and the Pharisees, which uh, we'll get into really the body of that sermon starting next week. But this week is the introduction, and I want to be clear about scribes and Pharisees and who they were. First off, they were not priests. Uh, they were not the, the ordained priest who would go into the, to the most sacred places or the, the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood. They were not Sadducees. The Sadducees had a big theological difference, uh, as well as they had a lot of ascribed political power. To, to put it basic, the scribes and Pharisees were the Bible teachers and those who took religion and the law of God very seriously. So, Jesus is starting next week, next week's sermon, Jesus is going to reveal to us the, the, the smoke and mirrors that, that the Pharisees and the scribes really are. But In in the beginning of this passage in verse one, it says, but then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. So understand that this morning, Jesus is not speaking yet to the religious leaders, but yet he's speaking to his own people. He's speaking to you and to me. So this passage this morning is not an invitation for us to become critical or cynical of those who might come to your mind as we we talk this morning, but rather it is an invitation for us to be self-critical to look within our own souls. Um, And what are we looking for? What's this about? Well, to to just get us going, it's about greatness. Jesus is gonna paint a life of the scribes and the Pharisees, and at the core of this picture is their own pursuit of greatness. But it's not a greatness that's like, you know, hey, He's, she's a great girl, or hey, he's a, he's a great guy. But this is, this is greatness in the sense of fame, being impressive, being followed, being praised. And Jesus powerfully yet succinctly tells us that there are two ways of pursuing greatness. In verse 12, which is really the main crux of, of this introduction and serves as a transition statement into the rest of his sermon, Jesus says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So essentially, there is a way of pursuing greatness that will ultimately end in humiliation. And then there is a way of pursuing greatness that will lead you to reaching loftier places than you could ever imagine. So the key ingredient to the latter pursuit of greatness, the key ingredient to the pursuit of greatness within the kingdom of God, it has nothing to do with your talent or your money, your prestige, your political affiliation, or how much you know, how educated you are. But the key ingredient is humility, to be humble. Now, you're not going to find humility listed as the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And I, I would argue that I don't, I don't necessarily think that humility is a fruit. It's not something that's produced out of the Christian's life, but rather humility lives within the roots of the tree. It is the nutrient that feeds who we are as Christians. Humility is not an action to be seen by other people, but rather it is a posture of our souls. The Bible is riddled with statements regarding of how God favors you being humble or favors humility. For example, we read in the Old Testament in Isaiah sixty-six two. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite, and and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And then in James four six, which we've already read this morning. There it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is. These are two examples of dozens of examples where it talks about God looking favorably upon humility. This is the essential ingredient that the scribes and the Pharisees were missing in their own pursuit of greatness. This is why Jesus is about to give a verbal lashing against these religious leaders and the Jewish people who followed them. The way they went about their life was not in line with what God has called us to in his kingdom. So in this passage, there is an invitation for us. One is to ask ourselves, what type of greatness are we pursuing? And the second question, which I would argue might be more important right now is are you giving your time, your devotion to following leaders whose greatness is like the scribes and the Pharisees? In, in the, the people that you're following, is there humility in the picture or is their pursuit of greatness one that will ultimately end in? Humiliation. So, for the purposes of this sermon and this passage, we will define Christian humility in two parts, and it will be the two points of this sermon. The first thing is you need to know your place, and the second thing is to bow at the throne of grace. Where there is no humility, there is no Jesus. Humility is to know your place and bow at the throne of grace, and then everything else in the Christian life is an outflow of this. In this text, Jesus is gonna paint us a picture of these religious leaders and their pursuit of greatness by, by talking about the seats that they want to sit in, the way they want people to view them and the way that they treat other people. And so this brings us to the first part of our definition and the first call is to know your place. I wanna be blunt and I wanna get off on... Uh, the right foot here and, and just define what know your place means. To know our place is this. You're a broken, insecure, fragile sinner in desperate need of Jesus to rescue you. That's the beginning point. That's our place. These religious leaders didn't know that place. They wanted a greatness and a fame that ultimately didn't belong to them. The way they went about pursuing greatness, it was authoritarian, it was self-centered, it was ostentatious. These religious leaders were, were revealing and showing the world one of the great ancient tragedies that began in the Garden of Eden. It began in the very beginning, which is what I call misplaced fame. It is believing the lie of Satan when he whispers in your ear that you can be like God. So, Looking at the scribes and Pharisees, there's a couple of ways that we see that they didn't know their place in their own pursuit of greatness. And I I do apologize. I've been stuck in my house for a very long time with three little boys. So I watch a lot of Little Baby Bum and Disney Plus. So everything in this sermon rhymes, but hopefully it'll help you to uh, remember some of it. The first thing is you don't know your place when it's all about your face. Now, When I say face, that's not me picking on all the people who like to take a lot of selfies, up-close selfies with with their their new haircut or their new makeup or their blue steel look and and post it on social media. Uh, I am not, that is not some weird allusion to Facebook. Uh, But when I say you don't know your place when it's all about your face, I mean when it's all about your image, your agenda, your ideology, or the, the ideology means your idea of how you think the world should be. For the scribes and Pharisees, it was it was all about their reputation, their impressiveness, their fame, and we read about this in verses two through seven. We see them playing a, a and it's funny to me. It's, it's like a weird game of musical chairs that when when the music stops playing, they they want to be sitting in the seat of Moses or they want to be sitting in the seats of honor. That's what they're really contending and fighting for. So essentially the The scribes and Pharisees, these religious leaders, they wanted the greatness on display in the pulpit or at the head of the table, or if they weren't sitting in the pulpit they would they would sit on the front pew to make sure you knew that they were there they they also looked the part when it talks about phylacteries around their neck or it talks about the tassels on their robes. These were not weird things. These were, these were religious accessories that Jewish people wore. But the scribes and Pharisees, they just went a little bit overboard and a little bit extravagant with their accessories so, they, so that they could show how religious they were, how impressive they were. When they walked out into, pub, into the public and in, in the marketplace, they, they, they made sure that they were seen. They loved it. They loved it when people would look at them and point at them and, and talk about how amazing they were and, and call them by, by, by honorific titles or prestigious titles such as teacher and rabbi and even father. See, the problem is that they, they sought a glory that didn't belong to them, but it belonged to the Lord. The gaze of other people was always upon them and it was never upon someone greater. At the core, whatever they were doing in their life It never pointed to someone greater than them. They were the endpoint of greatness. You don't know your place when it's all about your face. The second thing is you don't know your place when there is no grace. The scribes and Pharisees, they sat in the seat of Moses. So sitting was customary to do when you were teaching. We see Jesus do this all throughout the gospels. So to sit in the seat of Moses is a figurative seat, which means that when you sat down, you taught the law of God that was given to Moses. To be clear, the scribes and Pharisees were very well educated. They knew the law inside and out. They were subject matter experts. They knew their content. So the problem is not that they taught the law of Moses, but the problem is how they taught it and how they carried it out. This is why Jesus would say in verse two, you should do what they say, but don't practice what they do. Because read in verse four with me. It says, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. It was authoritarian. It put burdens upon people. They taught the principle of the law disconnected from the nature of God. They taught the law of God disconnected from the grace of God, which is not God's intention for his word. And when people could not handle the weight because the law of God is a very weighty thing that none of us can live up to, these religious leaders, they did nothing to help, but it made them feel superior. It made them feel great when other people couldn't meet that standard. And of course, they would go about their life giving the appearance that they could handle the law, that they had no issues with the laws and customs. You see, they they taught the law of God where it worked in their favor. They used the law of God to make their own platform and themselves greater. They wanted your praises and attention, but would do nothing to help. And see, this is where the pursuit of greatness that Jesus is talking about here, this is where it goes beyond just how people perceive you, but also how you treat other people. It was about them and their agenda, their teaching. And when you couldn't hack it, they extended no grace to you. A pursuit of greatness where it is all about your face and where there is no grace, that pursuit of greatness does not know how to suffer with people. It doesn't know how to truly listen to other people. It only knows how to lord its power and position over others. That pursuit of greatness gets really angry when someone else gets their way. That pursuit of greatness gets really angry when someone else gets the attention that they think they deserve. And it's not enough that this is what they did, but the saddest part in this whole thing to me is that the Jewish people bought into this. They drank the juice. They, they looked at these leaders and heralded them as great. They followed them. So hopefully we, we're beginning to see ourselves in this. We should not feel stranger to these realities. They're all around us. We live in a culture that is permeated by false greatness where everyone has a social media account where their faces can be seen their opinions can be heard and their ideologies can be presented and defended everywhere we look whether it's social media or the news someone is begging you to that you would give them their your time and devotion Everyone has it right, and at the same time, everybody else has it wrong. If you don't buy into it, you're made to be a fool or at least feel crazy. And I fear that this lockdown and this isolation has just made it so much worse. I fear that we have lost our source of truth in the church, we've forgotten our place. It has become about our own agendas and movements and presidents and leaders and opinions, and we have left no room for grace. Everyone speaks, but no one really listens. To disagree with someone immediately makes you an enemy of that person. And of course, the idea of loving our enemies is out of the question. Have you forgotten your place? Here's some questions. What are you saying amen to the most in your life right now? What is it that gets you fired up, that stirs your affections and your emotions right now? Where are you getting your truth? Who is your teacher and instructor and discipler right now? In your social media accounts, is there any evidence of grace being extended to those who disagree with you? What is your attitude towards your enemies right now? Are you using God or the name of Jesus to achieve your own ends and to push your own thoughts and ideas? We don't know our place when it's all about our face and where there is no grace. But the pursuit of greatness isn't just about knowing your place, but humility then requires us, humility moves us to bow at the throne of grace. Greatness that contains humility is not one that is self deprecating and walks around singing their woes. Yes, it means to know your place is to know that you're a sinner in, in desperate need of Jesus to rescue you, but within it, there's always an invitation. And that invitation means that you can bow at the feet of Jesus. So as we talk about this greatness that Jesus calls us to in his kingdom, what, it, what, what is it that happens at the throne of grace? Well, the first thing, at the throne of grace, we're all on the same level. Look at what Jesus says in verses eight through 10. Right after he, he talks about these religious leaders love on, honorary lofty titles, he, he says, but you, you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you're all brothers. And call no man your father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors for you have one instructor, the Christ. Now, Jesus is not condemning titles. He's not saying that no one should ever be called teacher or father, but rather Jesus is going against the grain of worldly greatness. He's re- reminding his disciples that in the kingdom of God, there is ultimately one rabbi one teacher, one heavenly father, and neither of which shall be usurped or overthrown. Within the kingdom of God, at the throne of grace, no one is vying for another level or position or prestige or fame In God's kingdom, at the throne of grace, it doesn't matter what your social status is. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is or your political affiliation or your race, whether you're a tweeter or a tweet not. At the throne of grace, we are all brothers and we are all sisters on the same level. We are all followers and students of Jesus. At the throne of grace, it's either Jesus or his disciples, no one else. This is why here at Sojourn, and this is just a side note, but here at Sojourn, we, we don't have a senior pastor. We don't call anyone senior pastor. Yes, Jonah is the lead pastor of this church. He, he, uh, he, he leads us in, in, in a lot in vision. He's our main preacher. He's the boss of our staff. But, but Jonah is not senior pastor. We will not give that title to, to someone because we don't want to give authority to a man that ultimately belongs to the Lord. We have multiple pastors. Some of us, some are on staff and some are not on staff. I'm, I am one of the non-staff pastors, but we're all on the same level here. At the throne of grace, we are all on the same level. The second reality of the throne of grace, which should be the most obvious, but right now I would argue it's, it's not the most obvious. is that At the throne of grace, there's one king, one Lord. We all bow down to King Jesus. Look at how Jesus subtly yet powerfully refers to himself in verse 11. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Jesus does not call himself the greatest and leave it at that. But Jesus will go on to show us what greatness is through humbling himself and extending grace into unexpected places. Jesus is going to show us how to live out that second part of of what we talked about in in verse 12, that he who humbles himself will be exalted. And the apostle Paul paints this magnificently in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. He says, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, which in that time was the most humiliating way to die. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, that's true everlasting greatness. Jesus, excuse me, though he was God, he did not come to us with a political agenda. He did not come to us lording his power over others. On this earth, he did not contend for seats of prominence. He came to us in humility with relentless grace. And what was his mission? Why was he here? Your soul, your soul is why he was here. He came fighting for you to bring you into the presence of God. And so because of this, whether it's on this side of eternity or the other side of eternity. Every tongue will confess. Every mouth will speak the words to Jesus that you are Lord. So whatever greatness you think you're pursuing, whatever greatness you are following, it doesn't matter. Every president, every king, every queen, every leader, every person who's ever been considered the greatest of all time, every person who has a million friends on Facebook or a million followers on Twitter, every person will look at Jesus on his throne and they will say, there's the greatest. He is Lord. Hopefully we're starting to see this morning that pursuing greatness is not about pursuing fame or pursuing the triumph of an ideology. Pursuing greatness is the pursuit of a person. And it's Jesus, the King of glory sitting on his throne of grace. This is where I feel like our culture has gone sideways. This is why you're going to see signs that say, Jesus is my savior, but Trump is my president. This is why it seems like relativism has, relativism has just taken over that You can do whatever makes you feel good, whatever makes you feel right, you feel validated or you feel great. Jesus never intended to simply be your savior only. Jesus knows how fickle we are and how prone we are to wonder how we are so easily tossed by every wind. It's not enough for Jesus to be savior of your soul, but he also is king of your life. This includes king of your political platform, king of your social media account, king of your parenting, king of your workplace. And if those around us, if they look at the church and they don't get the sense that Jesus is our king, that we are giving our devotion and allegiance to something different if we're speaking as as though there's a greater authority in our life than Jesus, I would argue that something has gone terribly wrong. The greatness that God calls us to, it begins with humility and it is followed by an outpouring of grace in our own lives. It's, It's just logical, right? If Jesus is our king and he sits on a throne of grace, accepting us in all of our faults and failures, then Christians and the church should be the most gracious people in the world. In God's kingdom, here's another rhyme for you. In God's kingdom, greatness comes when there is humility in the roots and grace in the fruits. Greatness comes when we can humble ourselves and begin to serve other people not just people like us who, or who vote like us or who look like us but serve all people here's some things that we might we might do and take this for what what it's worth maybe maybe we should take a little bit of time away from our social media accounts and the news i'm not i'm not saying that you maybe completely go away from it or maybe you, you that might be a good idea. But what I'm saying is that all the time we spend looking and being informed by these things, maybe we should replace that time with reading the Bible. Being informed by God's word. Replace that time with prayer. I, I don't think that this world needs more opinions. I think this world needs more prayer. Maybe we spend less time on the screens and more time on our knees. Maybe we can find ways to serve and extend grace to those who disagree with us. If you're a member of this church, or even if you're not a member of this church, maybe I know we're isolated and it's hard to see people and we have to wear masks everywhere we go and there's limitations in places, but maybe pick up your phone and call someone who you know you don't see eye to eye with and just ask them how they're doing. Maybe on that phone call, you can talk about your own weakness and your brokenness and how hard things have been for you or how much you need Jesus. Maybe repent to your friends and family of pursuing or following a greatness that's not what Christ has called us to. Maybe ask your friends or family, does your life look like you have a greater allegiance to something other than Jesus? Maybe Christians could repent on social media maybe post something encouraging and gracious to remind your followers and friends that Jesus is king of your life. Look, where there is no humility, there is no greatness and there is no Jesus. Humility is to know your place and bow at the throne of grace. In God's kingdom, greatness comes when there's humility in the roots and grace in the fruits. Every week we are reminded of this, where we remember Jesus' greatness, where we are invited to experience and share in his greatness. On the night when Jesus was betrayed by a close friend, Jesus didn't take to Twitter, he didn't storm the palace he didn't call down his army. He didn't wave a banner and he did not, he did not shout at his enemies. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he did something very ordinary. He took a piece of bread and he broke it. Then he took a cup of wine and he drank it. You see the The broken bread is simply a remembrance of the broken body of Jesus and the cup is a remembrance of the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. The greatness of Jesus is is experienced every week when we partake in this meal where we are announcing the Lord's death until he returns. This meal is a reminder to know our place in an invitation to come to the throne of grace, a place of true greatness, a place where those who see their need for Jesus belong and are loved and accepted. So whatever you have around you, whether it's eggs and bacon and coffee or a scone and some juice, or maybe you have some focaccia and and wine. I I don't know what you do at 9.55 in the morning, but whatever it is. Um, remember what Jesus has done for you. We, we mentioned that every time we partake in communion, we're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, where we celebrate the life of a man who fought for true justice. He spoke of this day of when the Lord returns at the end of his, I have a dream speech. When he speaks of all types of people holding hands and singing of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God almighty free at last. On that day, we will be free from violence and viruses, riots and relativism, tears and tyranny. We will be free from the false greatness from both the left and the right. We will be free from death. It will just be us and Jesus, the true king, the one who showed us what greatness looks like, on this side of eternity. Know your place and bow at the throne of grace. The greatness that God calls us to is where there's humility in the roots and grace in the fruits. Let's pray.
0: Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook. Or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android, where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.